Hello friends, uh, I'm recording this message. I'm actually about 10 minutes away from Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. Just arrived here not very long ago and got settled in for the evening. Uh, some people say, well, you are, you never seem to slow down, you never seem to retire, you never stop, seem to stop doing things. And that's true because Saturday morning I did a leadership retreat for Redeemer Lutheran Church in Springfield, Missouri then headed to spend the night in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then drove down to Angola Prison today. So I'm not very complacent, if you will. So I want to talk to you today about kind of a cure for everyday complacency. I'm going to base it on the book of Revelations, the third chapter, and uh, verses 14 to 22. We'll really be talking about an attitude that you'll often encounter in many areas of life. It's an attitude that says, Good enough is good enough, and right in the middle is not a bad place to be. Everything you do doesn't have to be perfect. There's no need to be crazy about anything. It's just best to settle for what you got and let it go at that. Now, you see this attitude in businesses that provide a product and customer service that's just barely good enough to keep the doors open, but never good enough to be a Fortune 500 company. You see it in relationships where a couple of people only do as much as necessary to keep that relationship or friendship afloat and try to keep everybody else out of it. This is Super Bowl Sunday, and sometimes you actually see it in sports franchises, although the Atlanta Falcons and the New England Patriots seem to have kind of avoided it. But some franchises where teams and fans settle for year after year of second place or third place or like the Chicago Bears last place. I mean, their attitude is that a championship might just be out of reach, but it sure beats being in, the, being in the cellar. And sadly, you even see it in church, too, the attitude that says good enough is good enough. We're comfortable. Uh, you know, attendance isn't too bad. We pay our bills. We've got nice people. We like each other. And if a new family comes in and wants to join us and are able to fit in, that, that'd be good. But uh, no point in exhausting our resources pursuing the lost and the lonely and the disenfranchised. I mean, there's so much trouble besides things are pretty good the way they are. Now, there is a temptation that every church needs to be on guard against. It's the attitude of complacency, an attitude that says good enough is good enough. Let's just keep things the way they are. It's also a temptation that every individual believer needs to be on guard against, this attitude that says, you know, my main goal is to spend as much time as possible coasting my way through life, breaking a sweat only when it's absolutely necessary. But friends, in every area of life, we have to guard against the sin of complacency, the attitude that says, good enough is good enough. Just make our home right here in the middle. But you know, the struggle for complacency uh, is not a recent phenomenon. It's, it's been around churches and individuals throughout history. In fact, it goes all the way back to the early church, the church of the New Testament. And I'm going to take a look at a church today. Many of you are familiar with it. We hear that what Jesus told his congregation about the steps they needed to take in order to get out of their lethargic mindset. And his words apply to churches yet today, as well as families as families and relationships and individuals, which means that his words apply to all of us today. Now, I'm going to go back to the book of Revelation. As you know, part of Revelation deals with the end times. But we also need to remember that this book was written uh, for the edification of the early church. And so there are many parts that have nothing to do with end times, but have everything to do with how we can be more faithful followers of Jesus. Now, it was written by John, the disciple of Jesus, that same one who wrote the Gospel of John, and First and Second and 3 John, for that fact. And in this book, uh, John has 
I guess we call a supernatural encounter with the risen Christ. And Jesus then speaks some things for John to record. And in chapters 2 or 3, he sends a message to seven of the key churches, challenging each of them to continue moving forward in the Christian life. I mean, his message for each church is pretty interesting. They apply in some way to just every church. And today we're going to look at one of these. It's the last one, the message that Jesus spoke to the church in Laodicea. Starting in verse 14, it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. And by the way, the angel could refer to the pastor, or it could be a metaphor intended to mean that this message is for the church, whole church to hear. But then in verse 14, it says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, friends, it's pretty clear from that text that Jesus means business. He's serious about what he says. And he wants us to take him seriously as well. In fact, the last phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's Jesus' way of saying, in effect, there may be some symbolism on my words. You you need to dig in and pay attention so that you can discern what I'm saying to you today. And Jesus is really talking about the sin of complacency, that sin of just being lukewarm, just not hot or cold. And it's interesting that he says, I just wish you were one or the other. I mean, can you, can you believe that he'd rather you be ice cold than lukewarm? Now, why is that? Well, because a complacent heart is really one of the most difficult hearts to reach. So today I want us to look at what it means to be lukewarm so that you are better able to recognize this attitude in yourself or, you know, as I think about myself. And, and I want us to consider what Jesus says that we need to do in order to conquer complacency once and for all. And if you've been a little bit too comfortable in your faith walk with the idea that good enough is good enough, today's message, I hope, will challenge you to break out of the middle and make your move to the head of the class. So let's think about for a moment how we struggle with the sin of complacency. And and there are really three characteristics of this attitude. And the first characteristic is no passion. Now, have you ever noticed that you can go into any coffee shop today and order steaming hot coffee? Or you can order fresh, cold, filter-brewed iced coffee, but you never ever see our special lukewarm brew on a Starbucks menu. That's because we all know that lukewarm coffee doesn't really taste very good. Or even worse, room temperature soda that's lost its fizz. And when you accidentally sip some, what do you do with it? I mean, you, you kind of spit it back out. And that's exactly what Jesus says he wants to do with the complacent Christians, he said in verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. 
Now, the Greek word for spit is actually a little bit stronger than that. It means literally vomit. I mean, that's how very distasteful, lukewarm faith is to Jesus. He's talking about having an attitude that's just a little bored and a little, uh, what would you call, blasé about everything. No fire, no enthusiasm, no excitement for anything. It's just kind of, meh. I mean, every believer in every church needs to find their passion, that goal or objective that sets their blood racing and gets them excited about all that life has to offer. So that first characteristic is no passion. The second characteristic is no hunger. Or maybe you could say no ambition, no vision, no drive. I mean, listen again to what Jesus said. Verse 17, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, he's not talking about having a proper attitude of contentment in which we say, I have Christ, so I need nothing else. He's talking about an attitude of, uh, what would you call it? smug self-satisfaction that says, I have me, so I need nothing else. There's a sense in which we do need to be driven by the idea of more. I mean, I have God in my life, but I need more of his presence. I'm working in the kingdom. I need to accomplish more for his glory. I love my family, but I need to love them and serve them every day more. The sin of complacency tells us, however, you know what? You're pretty good. You're fine the way you are. Right here in the middle, so just kind of pat yourself on the back, sit back, relax. No need to push yourself to do more. Now, over the years, I have seen plenty of, um, I guess I'll still call them Christians, become so complacent with where they are in their spiritual lives. And I've seen churches become so complacent with where they are in ministry, and as a result, they lose their hunger. They lose their drive, their ambition. They have, they have no vision for the future. And the third characteristic of complacency is no self-awareness. Jesus said in verse 17, But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And he's saying that the lukewarm kind of stumble their way through life, smug, self-satisfied, and at the same time they are clueless what's really happening in their lives. This, this is why... Uh, those who are complacent tend to be condescending as well, since they're not really evaluating themselves according to the biblical standards of holiness. They kind of fool themselves into thinking they're a whole lot better than they really are. And so they only see the shortcomings and deficiencies in everyone else. Churches, too, can become so smug and so self-satisfied that they begin to think that they're better than all the other churches in town. But i got to tell you, friends, when another church begins to expand its outreach, the complacent church will tell you how everything they're doing is wrong. And there are believers who are the same way. Their attitude is, since I don't need to worry about me, I'll just meddle in everybody else's business and pass judgments on what they do. And this is really the danger of the sin of complacency. It causes us to demand less from ourselves and expect more from others. It causes us to see ourselves higher than we deserve to be and see others lower than they deserve to be. And yeah, we all have to deal with this tendency toward complacency and the temptation is to settle into the life of being a lukewarm Christian. But I'm going to tell you, it's not a battle that we have to lose. That's because Jesus shows us how we can overcome the sin of complacency. And again, I'm just going to share three things. First of these is just reconsider what really matters most in life. Now, Jesus told that church in Laodicea that they are poor and pitiful and blind and naked. And then he said in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And he used these three examples, the salve, the clothes, the gold, 
because Laodiceans would understand the reference. He mentioned the gold because Laodicea was known throughout the world as a very wealthy community. It had become a banking center. He also mentioned the white clothes because Laodicea was famous for the manufacture of black woolen coats made from sheep. They were even named after the city. He mentioned the salve because near Laodicea was a world-renowned medical school that produced a powder that was mixed with oil and used as an ointment for people who had eye disease. He was saying, in effect, that life is about so much more than all these things that you defile your life, uh, that define your life on Laodicea. You need to reconsider what wealth really is, and it has nothing to do with money in the bank. And you may be proud of your designer woolen coats, but you need to consider how you can be clothed in the robes of righteousness. And even more than the salve that's used around the world to heal those with deteriorating eyesight, you need to pursue a deeper kind of healing, the kind of healing that goes soul deep and cleanses you of all sin and unrighteousness. You need to reconsider, he says, what really matters most in this life, and what really matters most is a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus. So that first step is reconsider what really matters most in life. The second step is recommit your life to the lordship of Jesus the Christ. A friend of mine owns a business, told me about a year ago how he used two completely different strategies to deal with a problem he was having with two different employees. When a problem came with the first one, a temp, he just fired him, gave him a severance package, sent him on his way. However, when a problem came up with his second employee, he sat down, talked to him, gave him some additional training, established a little bit better system of communication and accountability, and he helped that employee get a little bit better. And his explanation was, I have a long-term plan for this guy. When he makes mistakes, I won't ignore them, and I may yell at him a little bit, but I'm going to work with him until he learns to do his job well. And the employee, my friend said, really appreciates this attitude from him. He doesn't expect to get away with making mistakes, but he appreciates the fact that when mistakes happen, the boss won't just send him out the door. He keeps working with him until he gets it right. Yeah, there's a sense in which this describes our relationship with Jesus. Because in verse 19, he said, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. See, when we make mistakes, and by mistakes I mean sins, Jesus doesn't give you a severance envelope and send you on your way. He loves you too much to let you stay where you are, ruining your life. So he calls you in, he rebukes you, and in his word he reveals to you the things you need to change about your sinful lives, your sinful selves. And when necessary, he also disciplines you. The word discipline can also be translated uh, correct. He corrects us. This isn't about punishment. This is about teaching us to do right instead of doing wrong. Then Jesus said, be earnest. Some translations say, be zealous and repent. Now, repentance means to make an about face. I've always said it means kind of change your mind and change your direction. Yeah, it means we say, Lord, I realize there are things about me I need to be changed. I'm ready for your spirit to do this work in my life. It kind of means saying, Lord, I don't want to live my life as some sort of smug, self-satisfied, never rising above room and temperature. I'm ready for my heart to be fired up. I'm ready to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Friends, if you want to conquer the sin of complacency, you need to, every day of your life, recommit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. And here's the third thing. Reconnect with Jesus one-on-one every day of your life. Jesus said in verse 20, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
Now, I always thought that this verse was addressed to non-believers, that this was about salvation. And while it's true that non-believers can certainly respond to the invitation of Jesus at any time, this verse is specifically directed to those who already consider themselves Christ followers. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. Now, I've noticed that many times as we go about our daily lives, we try to leave him on the other side of the door because we have this kind of attitude that says, Lord, I don't need you right now. I think I can handle this. And he says, in fact, you know, but if you'll open the door, I'll come in and fill your life with my presence. We'll fellowship together. We'll eat together as friends. I'll be your constant companion. And this step, then, is the most important part to overcoming the sin of complacency because his presence drives out everything that isn't good in your life. Now, if you look online, you can find instructions on how to evacuate the air out of a jar. It involves attaching a pump and drawing all the air out and sealing the top of the jar so that it becomes a vacuum. But when you open the jar, guess what happens? That's right, air. However, there's another way to get the air out of a jar. You know how to do that? Fill it with water. Fill the jar until it's overflowing, and as the jar is filled with water, it pushes out the air because the water has taken its place. Now, this is my point. There are things in your life that don't need to be there. Sinful attitudes, actions, habits. And the best way to get them out is to fill your life to overflowing with the presence of Jesus. And he stands at the door and knocks, and he wants to come into your life and literally spend the day with you. Now, if you've got a tendency towards complacency and a kind of a lukewarm spirit, he'll ignite a fire in your heart that will burn as long as you live. Now, Jesus concludes this message in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, Jesus is talking symbolically here. When we get to heaven, we will stand before his throne and not ours. But what he is saying is this. The one who overcomes, and by the way, overcomes what? Overcomes complacency and a lukewarm spirit. The one who overcomes will reign victorious just as though his resurrection, he himself reigned victorious over death in the grave. That's why Paul said in Romans 5.17, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? That's Romans 5.17, by the way. This is what God wants for his church and for his people, that we reign in life. Not that we merely settle for a cozy little spot in the middle while we congratulate ourselves and criticize everyone else. He doesn't want you in the middle. He wants you to rise your way to the top every day of your life. And how do you move to the top? You answer the door, and you invite Jesus in, and you spend the day with him, all day, every day. Friends, what you'll find is that more of Jesus in your life means more of everything that matters. You'll never be content with a little spot in the shade, a little money in the bank, and a fine woolen cloak. But more of Jesus in your life moves you toward more of everything else that really matters. Through him, any tendency towards complacency is replaced with the fire of his Holy Spirit and a passion for the life he has called you to lead. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.